Happy Friday. I'm Charlie Sykes. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. This is our Memorial uh, Day weekend podcast. We won't be doing a podcast on Monday. I hope you guys can all kick back and enjoy uh, the weekend. Uh, as we are recording this morning, Friday morning, Republicans in the Senate are preparing to block the creation of a January 6th commission. This would be the Independent Nonpartisan Commission. It's rather extraordinary considering the fact that it had uh, strong bipartisan support in the House. Uh, there was a, you know, about five seconds in which uh, Mitch McConnell uh, was taking this seriously and seemed to be open to the idea of the commission, uh, but apparently has decided he's going all in in trying to block it. And the reports we're getting is that uh, he was concerned about the lobbying on Capitol by the the mother of the uh, the police officer, uh, Officer Sicknick, who uh, died in the wake of that uh, that insurrection uh, of the riot. Uh, he was concerned that her lobbying might sway some Republican senators to take this seriously, to to actually back the blue. And so he, he is uh, asking them as a was a personal favor. This was the report from CNN: personal favor to vote against uh, this. Uh, you know, and he's making two two somebody somewhat uh, self contradictory arguments against the the commission. You'll know this by the time you've listened to this. Obviously, number one, he doesn't think there'll be any new information, which of course is not true because we still haven't gotten into what President Trump knew and when he knew it and what he was doing during that day. But the other argument uh, that McConnell apparently is making is uh, this might be this might hurt us politically. And this is all about politics because the only thing that really matters is winning the 2022 election, the midterms, and he doesn't want to be relitigating the election. Good luck with that, by the way. And uh, he wants Republicans to be focused on beating up on the Biden administration rather than airing the dirty laundry from uh, the, the Trump administration, which is about as cynical a posture as you could possibly have putting party and partisan interests ahead of the country. But then this is Mitch McConnell. I, I, I think that, you know, as as we watch Mitch McConnell kill this commission because he kind of wants to move on and drop January 6th into the political memory hole. Remember what Mitch McConnell said on the floor of the Senate in the wake of January 6th during one of the moments when he appeared to be taking this seriously. And remember when he said that that there would come a time to hold Donald Trump accountable. Well, that was then. Let's play that. President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen. Unless the statute of limitations is run, still liable for everything he did while he's in office. Didn't get away with anything yet. Yet. Yeah, well, that was then. Uh, meanwhile, here's an indication of the fact that this is ongoing. Uh, I, I know that many of you think that we should ignore people like Matt Gates, um, but these people are telling us who they are on a regular basis. I'm just going to play two short clips. This is Matt Gates, who, of course, uh, may end up uh, behind bars himself uh, by the end of this term. But he is uh, he, he is in the process of, and I want you to listen to this, because I'm playing this for one, one reason, one reason only. The way in which the idea of political violence is being normalized, the way in which the idea of violence against the government is being injected into American politics. And if you don't think that Matt Gates and the kinds of things that Matt Gates is saying are not influencing Republicans, I think you're, you are naive. These are the comments 
that got uh, standing ovations from this Republican group last night. So we have two soundbites. Um, Matt Gates on the Second Amendment. The Internet's hall monitors out in Silicon Valley, they think they can suppress us, discourage us. Maybe if you're just a little less patriotic, maybe if you just conform to their way of thinking a little more, that you'll be allowed to participate in the digital world. Well, you know what? Silicon Valley can't cancel this movement or this rally or this congressman. We have a second amendment in this country, and I think we have an obligation to use it. Okay, in the context there, it's not clear. So we're going to use the second amendment to do what? Who are we going to shoot? We're going to shoot Bill Gates, or are we going to shoot the folks that were on Twitter? I'm not sure. But in case that's too subtle for you, um, this is the comment that Matt Gates made last night that really got a rise out of the crowd. Let's play number two. We have a second amendment in this country, and I think we have an obligation to use it. The second amendment, this is a little history lesson for all the fake news media. The second amendment is not about, it's not about hunting, it's not about recreation, it's not about sports. The Second Amendment is about maintaining within the citizenry the ability to maintain an armed rebellion against the government if that becomes necessary. I hope it never does, but it sure is important to recognize the founding principles of this nation and to make sure that they are fully understood. Uh, There is a non-zero constituency on the right for this notion that the Second Amendment is all about uh, being able to have an armed rebellion against the government. I guess I would ask the question, so who are we going to be shooting? Meanwhile, we get the story in the New York Times, QAnon now as popular in the United States as some major religions. This is a survey by the Public Religion Research Institute that finds that a non-trivial 15% of Americans agree with the idea that the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. 23% of Republicans agree with that. So that's fine. Just something to keep in mind when you go and barbecue on uh, Memorial Day weekend. So joining us to talk about a lot of things that are going on uh, is Jonathan Greenblatt, the executive director of the Anti-Defamation League, an outspoken uh, crusader against anti-Semitism. So so this is fine. This is completely normal America, Jonathan. It's a scary time, I got to tell you, Charlie, the QAnon being like a religion Again, that believes in the Satan-worshipping pedophilia cabal in Washington, I suppose, with their Jewish space lasers and whatnot. It's just really quite alarming. Well, let me go. This was a question I had about, you know, five or six, but I'm going to let's go to that since we're talking about conspiracy theories. Because any time conspiracy theories grow and metastasize, it's re- it always ends up being bad for the Jews. Why is that? What is the connection between these, these fetid fever swamps of conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism? Can well, you connect many, the dots? Sure, Charlie. I think in many ways, anti-Semitism is the oldest conspiracy theory. The idea that this minority of people who for 2,000 years were fairly disempowered 
you know, living in segregated slum-like conditions in communities across Europe and the Middle East, that somehow they were responsible for, take your pick, you know, murdering the Messiah, all the world's wars, spreading plague and famine, manipulating events, controlling all the money. I mean, it was this remarkable kind of contradiction where, again, you had this this very small minority, which wasn't allowed to live where they wanted, work where they wanted, own land and whatnot, yet they were somehow responsible for all of the ills facing society. But that conspiracy theory, if you will, it somehow managed to cross cultures and continents and to endure through different epochs of history, you know, from when the church ruled Europe to the Reformation to when, uh, you know, we moved into the more kind of enlightened age of reason. Somehow, some way, the Jews made a convenient scapegoat, you know, for for monarchs and for what became legislatures and other leaders. I say all this because flash forward to today, we're living in a very different world, the Jewish community. But what we have found, whether it's been in the United States or certainly in um, Israel, uh, is that liberal democracy is literally the best setup for not just the Jewish people, but for all minorities. Sort of a pluralistic democracy where you're defined not by your caste, you know, not by your race, not by who your parents might be, but instead by you know what you're capable of by right right your intrinsic abilities and your capability to achieve and excel this and in an environment where it's the rule of law that prevails right not some despot or not some tyrant so what we've seen throughout history is that liberal democracy is the best arrangement particularly for the Jews in this context but again i would say for all minorities which is why it's been so alarming to us in recent years where we've seen the rule of law start to fray and unravel, where we've seen you know, tyrannical people try to uh, build cults of personality, and where we've seen, again, as recently as uh, last November and what's happening right now in Arizona and other places, people literally question the rule of law and the idea of one man, one vote. I mean, I think all of this doesn't bode well for our democracy in general, but specifically, it doesn't bode well for the Jewish people. So let's talk about the the, the term anti-Semitism, because th- there seems to be some misunderstanding and some debate about what constitutes anti-Semitism. There are uh, some, in, in some cases, it's conflated with any criticism of Israel. So let's just, before we get into how bad things are right now, and they are horrifically bad, just give me your take on what is genuine anti-Semitism and what is not? So if I criticize the Netanyahu government or I criticize Israel's policy on X, Y, or Z, that that's not anti-Semitism, is it? Absolutely not. I mean, so what I is? think, so anti-Semitism, I would describe as prejudice or discrimination against the Jewish people because they are Jewish, right? So like racism of different sorts it's holding an intrinsic bias against Jews for simply the crime of being Jewish. And again, it's often associated with a set of stereotypes. And I think, again, it's born out of this historical tendency to scapegoat Jews and blame them for problems because the Jews were different than, let's say, the Christians or the Muslims who may have been the dominant uh, group in a particular country or geographic area. So today, anti-Semitism manifests typically in the ADL. We look at acts of harassment, vandalism or violence committed against Jewish individuals or institutions. Now, what I would say is that as we've historically thought about the Jewish people, and certainly in 
uh, like a, a, over 2,000 years, we were living as a community in diaspora in exile. Since 1948, there's been a sovereign state of Israel, which is the Jewish state, in as much as it was founded as a political entity, provide a homeland for the Jewish people uh, in their ancestral you know, homeland. So if, like a political entity in their ancestral homeland. Now, I do think there are some who abuse the term anti-Semitism and suggest that any criticism of Israel's anti-Semitism, but that's ridiculous. That's like saying any criticism of Saudi Arabia or Iran is, is Islamophobic. Or any criticism of, you know, the UK with the cross on its flag is anti-Christian. I mean, again, I think that's ridiculous. The reality is, is that what makes this issue a little bit complicated is that there certainly is a sophisticated set of actors who say, whoa, whoa, whoa. They used to say, Charlie, I don't like the Jewish people because they are illegitimate, because they don't belong, because they manipulate events, and so on. Because they kill Christian babies. That was, you know, the blood libel. Now, what's un- what is a reality is today there are those who say, well, well, I don't have a problem with the Jewish people. It's just the Jewish state that is illegitimate. The Jewish state that doesn't belong. The Jewish state that manipulates events. The Jewish state that kills Palestinian babies. And so while I would suggest that c- legitimate criticism of the state of Israel belongs you know, is a big part of the public conversation. We should be able to do that. We do that at ADL all the time. But to quote Natan Sharansky, the very famous, you know, Soviet prisoner of conscience, when you demonize the Jewish state, when you delegitimize its very existence, when you hold it to double standards that you don't hold other countries to, that reeks of anti-Semitism. So Again, to bring it back, legitimate criticism of Israel, we do it at ADL. Lots of organizations do it. Lots of politicians do it. It is part of having robust public debate. But what we look at at ADL very carefully is when, again, you delegitimize, hold it to double standards or demonize it, that often is an indicator that there's something else going on. So let's talk about where we are at right now, because as you pointed out, there's nothing new about anti-Semitism. It has been around for centuries. Uh, it's certainly been a part of the fabric of you know of of our of our of our lives. I remember my father was Jewish before World War II. Uh, you know, was was commenting on what it was like to be you know try to get into an elite college as as a Jew when they used to have quotas. Uh, for for Jews back then, and the, and the quotas there were to not allow too many uh, in, and so that, this was this is still part of of our time. But right now, it it feels like there is this explosion. I'm certainly not going to use the word like unprecedented, but I'm going to quote you. Um, let's play a clip of you, Jonathan Greenblatt, on CBS talking about what you are seeing and what's happening right now. Let's play that. I think one of the things that makes this conflict different than prior incidents is not just the breadth of the attacks. We're seeing them coast to coast or the brutality of these attacks. They're happening in broad daylight. But to your point, the amplification effect of social media. Again, it used to be that people got information from TV. Now for young people, their news source is TikTok. And so that is really alarming. We've seen unhinged memes. We've seen inflammatory videos. And we've seen crazy conspiracy theories that are circulating through Instagram, through WhatsApp, through TikTok and Twitter, through YouTube. And I must tell you, you know, the ADL, our center in Silicon Valley, the Center for Technology and Society has studied this. As you said, we've seen 17,000 plus tweets using that hashtag Hitler was right. 
Another disgusting hashtag we saw was hashtag COVID-1948, as if the state of Israel was some disease to be eradicated, like COVID-19. We tracked a 350% increase in anti-Semitic epithets on, on 4chan. So across the board, and I've got to tell you this, the social media companies need to step up. Wow. I mean, I, when I heard that, I was like, okay, Jonathan, okay, this, everything you're saying is, 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 is horrific and horrible. Why is this happening? And I don't mean, why, why is there anti-Semitism? Because there's always been anti-Semitism, but why is this happening now? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. We've seen anti-Semitism, first and foremost, increase fairly dramatically in recent years, right? So the ADL has been tracking incidents of harassment, vandalism, and violence for more than 40 years. Literally, we have better data on anti-Jewish hate crimes than the FBI because we've been doing it longer. And I would suggest to you that whereas the numbers have been going down for about 15 years, in 2016, they shot up 34% year over year, all weighted, by the way, Charlie, to the second half of the year. In 2017, they spiked huh. 58%. And then in 2018, while they dipped 5%, that was the year of Pittsburgh, right? The most violent anti-Semitic right. attack in American history. And then in 2019, they spiked up again 12%. 2019 was the highest year on record that we've ever seen in 40 years. So we expected the number to go down in 2020. We expected to drop because everyone was, you know, in their homes and campuses were closed and businesses were shuttered and schools were, you know, distance learning and whatnot. The reality is, Charlie, in 2020, it was still the third highest year we've ever seen. So while it dipped a little bit, it was still way larger than we expected. So I think the first thing to say about the anti-Semitism that's happening right now is we need to understand the context we're in, is I would suggest to you the anti-Semitism had already risen to an alarming level. In part, I think it's been a bit normalized. And what I mean by that is I think both the right and the left use anti-Semitism as a political weapon, right? So I think we've seen many on the left accuse, you know, the Trump administration and folks on the right from, you know, for promoting anti-Semitism, even sometimes when it might not have been there. Now, to be clear, the ADL has probably been the most outspoken Jewish organization about Trump's excuse and empowerment of extremists from Charlottesville to his, equiv his equivocation there, to telling the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, to credentialing white supremacist media at White House events. Charlie, I could go on. But there's no question that he wasn't sounding a dog whistle to these people. He was literally like using a bullhorn. And they felt empowered and emboldened under Trump. And by the way, we know that, Charlie, because we follow white supremacists and we monitor them. And they were saying, we feel emboldened. So, But on the other hand, you also have the left, the political left, which I think also uses anti-Semitism. Um, or, or the, I'm sorry, the political right, which also uses anti-Semitism as a weapon, again, like to silence any criticism of Israel. But let's, what's happening now in recent weeks is really quite dramatic. So we've seen the ADL tracked a 75% increase in anti-Semitic incidents over a two-week period Jeez. before and after the conflict. Yeah, it's a nuts. It's over 200 across, acts across the country. But these acts are different than what we've seen in the past, Charlie. Number one, we've seen things happening from coast to coast, spreading like wildfire, like off the top of my head. California, Utah, Arizona, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, 
New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, DC, uh, Florida, South Carolina. And this is just off the top of my head. So the breadth of these attacks is stunning. And I also must say the brutality, the, the brazenness. So some of you and you, you, maybe you and some of your listeners, like we've seen some videos of attacks in broad daylight, yeah. of people being assaulted and left bloodied and battered on the sidewalk simply for the crime of wearing a kippah. And the people attacking, staging these attacks, you know, they're not wearing MAGA hats. Let's be clear, right? They're not, you know, tr- coming out of Trump rallies. They're coming out of pro-Palestinian rallies. And they're wearing kafias. And as the case in Times Square, they beat the man with a flagpole that had a Palestinian flag on it. So what's scary for Jews in this moment, Charlie, is we've seen an alarming rise of anti-Semitism that seemed to come from the extreme right. Now we're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism that's coming from, it would appear to be, you know, supporters of Palestinian, you know, nationalism. And some, we've been heartened to see that there have been political figures who have called this out clearly and unequivocally. And yet at the same time, some have felt the need to, again, equivocate and say, well, I'm opposed to anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian hate. Well, to be clear, we're opposed to all those things too. But in this moment, when again, Jews are being literally assaulted in broad daylight, when synagogues and kosher businesses are being vandalized, when people are being harassed in the ugliest sort of ways, it's not the time to say, well, I oppose anti-Semitism and, I don't know, xenophobia against immigrants. Or, well, I oppose anti-Semitism and, I don't know, anti-whatever, anti-Hindu hate. Like, this is the moment to say, I oppose anti-Semitism. Full stop. No equivocation, no qualification, period, end of sentence. And unfortunately, I don't think we've seen enough of that. Well, and, and you're, you're describing some of the reaction of, of some folks on the, on the left who were apparently a little bit uncomfortable in criticizing the anti-Semitic attacks that appeared to come from either pro-Palestinian folks or people on the left. Because it's easy in our tribal society, if you're a progressive, to you know, talk about Charlottesville and the alt-right and everything. But it's, it's, it's much more uncomfortable to talk about it if it's perceived to be coming from your, quote, your own side. And it kind of had a little bit of a vibe, that whole... All Lives Matter. It was like during the Black Lives Matter, people said All Lives Matter. I got that same vibe on from some of the progressives who were not able to condemn, you know, anti-Jewish violence. It became we condemn all violence against all groups. It t- kind of had that vibe, didn't yeah, it? I couldn't agree <laughs> more. I could I could not agree mm-hmm. more. And I think, like, look, again, Natan Sharansky said this to me a few years ago. He said, you know, when you call it anti-Semitism, you need to call it, you need to have the courage to call it out when it happens among your own tribe. He said, so I'm more right-wing, he identified himself, I need to call out people on the right who do it, and you, Jonathan, are more left-wing, as he described to me. You need to call it out when it happens from people on the left. But I think there's something to be said. I mean, folks like you who've spoken out against the excesses and the indignities and the, I don't know, like proto-fascism of the mm-hmm. Trump administration took a real risk in doing that, as, did, as have people like Senator Romney and Representative Cheney and Kinzinger and other people like Brett Stevens and Max Boot and Jennifer Rubin, I could go on, right? But Mm -hmm. that kind of strength of character, that kind of fortitude is what we need in these moments when our democracy is tested and when our morality is tested. And so by the same token, yeah, I expect every single leader on the left 
every single person who believes in a two-state solution or Palestinian nationalism, and by the way, that includes me because I believe in a two-state solution, to still have the courage of our character to say and the fortitude to say, you know what, while I believe in that, anyone, anyone who thinks that it's activism to brutalize Jewish people, to drive through a Jewish neighborhood in Los Angeles with a megaphone saying, we're going to, or this happened in Los An- in London, excuse me, we're going to rape your women, we're going to rape and kill your daughters. Or what did happen in Los Angeles, Charlie, was people in trucks driving through a Jewish neighborhood yelling Alu Akbar and free Palestine, and then again assaulting diners at a restaurant who were identified as Jewish. That doesn't help Palestinian national, the, Palesti- the interests of the Palestinian people. That isn't activism, it's anti-Semitism, pure and simple. It's hate full stop, and it needs to be shut down. So I think it's just critical in these times. It may not be politically easy, but when it counts, you got to have the courage to call out your own family, your own friends, your own tribesmen when they exhibit the hallmarks of hate. And that includes, obviously, if you have a Democratic congressperson who is talking about it's all about the Benjamins or who are referring to Israel as an apartheid state. Because that's inflammatory, and that is that sort of that double standard you were talking about. Do you agree? Yeah, I entirely agree. Yeah. So, look, let's be clear. Like, um, when you have, when you use inflammatory rhetoric, when you say make unhinged allegations, when you spread conspiracy theories, like for example, the Jewish state is systematically slaughtering Palestinian children, or the Jewish state <laughs> is committing genocide. Don't be surprised. When, you, when your inflammatory rhetoric inflames tensions, when your unhinged allegations lead unhinged people to commit crimes. Uh, and it's inexcusable. And you know, to draw a parallel for just a minute, I, and I don't think the foreign policies are the same at all, to be clear, but you can be impassioned about, the ish, about China. You can be impassioned about things that China is doing to their own ethnic and religious minorities, like the Tibetans or the Uyghurs about what's happening in Hong Kong, about how they repress their own citizens, um, I could go, or about you know the issues that are now coming to light vis-a-vis the uh, COVID-19 and its origins. And yet, as impassioned as you may be, that is not an excuse. There is no pretext to go assault Asian Americans, to go attack an elderly person who you think is Chinese, right? Just yesterday in New York, there was a 75-year-old elderly woman who was sucker punched in the street. Uh, Asian American woman, like that is reprehensible. And by the same, and by the way, members of the squad and other, you know, democratic people on the left and the right in the right, you know, have called out anti-AAPI hate and they should. But like, if you call it out there, you need to call it out when it happens to Jewish people, you know, in the very same way. So get upset about China or Mexico, but don't attack, attack Mexican Americans or Latinos. Don't attack Chinese American or AAPI people. You can get upset about it, Middle East policy, but that's not an excuse to attack Jewish people. Absolutely so, inexcusable. So let's talk about the normalization of this kind of rhetoric. And and you um, called out Fox News on all of this. And I thought this was a um, a really important moment because the danger was so, um, I, I think, was so stark uh, that you have one of the highest rank, if not the, the highest rated uh, host, uh, Tucker Carlson, on Fox News. 
um, embracing the so-called replacement theory. You know, for people who know who have been paying attention, you know that that's what they were chanting in Charlottesville. They were saying the Jews will not replace us. This is a long uh, standing meme of the white nationalists of anti-Semites that that somehow if minorities of Jews uh, become too powerful, they will replace you in the you know in the democratic process or or whatever, and. Um, Tucker Carlson is using that phrase and he's talking about it. And you wrote a letter to the Fox News CEO, Suzanne Scott, saying, make no mistake, this is dangerous stuff. The great replacement theory is a classic white supremacist trope that undergirds the modern white supremacist movement in America. It is a concept that is discussed almost daily in online racist fever swamps. And now it is being discussed on Fox News, which, as we know, is the beating heart of the right wing right now. And you said, given his long record of race baiting, uh, we believe it is time for Tucker Carlson to go. But uh, spoiler alert here, Fox is standing solidly behind Carlson. They kind of blew you off, didn't they? Well, look, ADL has known the Murdoch family for a long time. My predecessor was very close to Rupert Murdoch. Um and, you know, we f- we're a civil rights organization. We fervently believe in the First Amendment. But I think Fox has to make a decision about what voices it chooses to kind of elevate and privilege. We know that Tucker Carlson is their, you know, top uh, draw in terms of ratings. He's got the prime time slot at 8 p.m. on Fox News. But it is unambiguous. His continued utilization of these white supremacist tropes like the Great Replacement Theory seems to me at best irresponsible at worst like intentionally stoking kind of the kind of animus between you know certain parts of the country that really is combustible and dangerous again when the when the white supremacists were marching through charlottesville chanting jews will not replace us with their torches this is what they were talking about indeed fox chose to sort of disregard what we had to say but my my response to them, and really I gave a speech to the World Federation of Advertisers, I think brands who talk about their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, brands who talk about their belief that black lives matter and their commitment to kind of lift up all of the different marginalized communities. Now many, thankfully, are committing to support the AAPI community. And I've seen a number of great emails over the past week and statements from the NBA, from Major League Soccer, from... Deloitte, uh, Weber Shandwick, uh, I think Microsoft, all about standing with the Jewish community. But you can't make these statements that you stand with us or you stand with the black community and then look askance as Fox News lifts up Tucker Carlson. I think consumers, employees, shareholders want to see brands embed values across their value chain, right? Not just in press releases ex post facto not just the occasional donation, not just a chief diversity officer, but like to demonstrate that they're committed to values in all that they do. When you do less than that, it's it's not, you know, it's a kind of hypocrisy. So while I think that Fox and, and Lachlan Murdoch can choose who they continue to elevate, my hope would be that if they don't make the right decision, that advertisers, not just on the Tucker show, across Fox News, will help them understand the ramifications of their continued um, you know, complicity in the face of this kind of racism and hate. Well, you probably know I've become exhausted by being disappointed by Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is, is, is one of the seven members of the Fox News board, and I wrote a piece for Politico um, after you wrote your letter saying, look, uh, if not now, Paul, when? 
Uh, if you're going right. to draw a line, why would this not be the line if you want to make a difference? Because uh, in the past, he has not hesitated to call out this kind of you know racist rhetoric. And yet now he's in a position perhaps to do something about it. And there's no indication that he is, which which I find highly disappointing um, to do. You can talk about this in some vague sense. But if you are sitting on the board of directors of a corporation that is actively promulgating these ideas, you have a responsibility. I mean, it's this is not, this is not a bystander thing where you and I can, you know, write letters or put out tweets or call on advertisers. There are people who have a I have a fiduciary responsibility and a moral responsibility to deal with this because the consequences, I mean, we're living through the consequences. I mean, what you described as explosion um, ought to frighten people. And if you think, even part of you thinks that I'm contributing to that, then you have to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I just agree. Look, I think Congressman Ryan, um, Speaker Ryan, I think had a pretty distinguished career. And I appreciated that. I think he left office because he felt like he couldn't countenance exactly where the GOP was going under the you yeah. know the previous president. But I, I wish he would. And I don't know what the conversations are like in the boardroom. I mean, he's always been good on these issues. He's always been good. Yeah. A friend of the Jewish community, been good on Israel. Uh, it's hard for me to follow really to make sense of why he doesn't say something here. So let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene for a, a moment because we have to <laughs> with uh, with her comments about the Jewish uh, space lasers and then her comparison of, uh, let's just talk about this, your reaction to her, her comparison of the mask mandates and requirements to, for proof of vaccine, comparing that to the Holocaust. And she continues to double and triple down uh, with her comparisons to Nazis, uh, to, to, to the, the Nazi regime. Your your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, from her Jewish space lasers comment way back to her America First Caucus idea, which th- thankfully was aborted, to yeah. now this. I mean, she... Look, the Anglo-Saxon feels, Caucus, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Anglo-Saxon Caucus. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like Marjorie Taylor Greene is a breed of new legislator. In some ways, that was really empowered by the previous president, who don't really care about you know getting legislation done who don't really care about reaching across the aisle, who care more about likes and tweets and kind of media attention. And unfortunately, look, she's raised a lot of money on the on the heels of the media firestorm that she's generated, which is kind of upsetting. But it gets back to where we started this conversation about the number of people in America who think that QAnon is real. So look, I've described her as somewhere between you know deranged and demented. I hate to give her any oxygen. She's clearly way out of line. And in a moment when Jewish people are being attacked in the streets, again, whether the threats come from the left or the right, uh, the bottom line is that we don't need with quote unquote friends like this who can't get their facts straight and who think trivializing the Holocaust will somehow get them, if not political points, you know, help them make headlines and raise money. I think it's really reprehensible. And, um, you know, I wish you would just go away. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, a, you're a diplomat. Um, you're diplomatic in, in your approach to many of these issues. And when, when Kevin McCarthy put out a strongly worded tweet condemning her, uh, you, 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 you wrote, Hey, you, you know, you welcome this. Uh, you, you, you praised Kevin McCarthy for taking the position. Yes. But I guess my question is now that you're looking back on it, and you, it's pretty ob- evident that that's all they're going to do, that Kevin McCarthy is done with this now. There's no sanction. There's no talking to. There will be no consequences whatsoever. She is still going to be a, a member of the Republican conference in good standing. You know, uh, you know, 
Did Kevin McCarthy deserve praise for his strongly worded tweet? Well, look, I wish it had happened a lot sooner. Uh, I'm not sure what else. I mean, you might be able to educate me. Like, so she doesn't have any more committee assignments, right? He's not allowed her in the kind of the leadership. Yeah, what else can you do? I don't, I don't really know. I guess the the GOP could make a decision, or the RNC could make a decision whether or not they give her any right. support from the congressional coordinated campaign for her next run. But like, well, Adam, I think- Adam Kinzinger suggested expelling her from the conference, which is uh, clearly they're not going to do. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think I'm glad I'm glad that uh you know Congressman McCarthy got on the record. I've heard, I've talked to other members. I talked yesterday to uh a very high-ranking, you know, member of Congress from the GOP who was absolutely livid about her. Uh I, I just I, I wish they would say it a, a bit quicker, a bit more clearly, and I if there were other steps they could take to marginalize her even further, I think ultimately it would be the benefit of their party and to the benefit of our democracy. All right, I want to move away from these personalities and I want to ask you this question. We're having in the midst of a of a really um I wanted to say robust debate, although it's not really, uh, but we're, you know, a heated debate about history and the uses of history. What is history for? Um, how do we teach our past or come to, to grips with things that happen in the past? And there are a lot of people who think that the point of history is just to make you feel good about yourself and about your country. There are others who believe that we need to move on from things that happened a long time ago because they're no longer relevant. So I want to just talk about this the the importance of historical memory you know because i i you know we understand you know why it would be important for say germany to acknowledge as it did i think today or yesterday um you know its atrocities in namibia or um the the biden administration finally acknowledging the armenian genocide just talk to me a little bit about the importance of acknowledging that history for people who think the past is the past. We shouldn't dwell on it. Uh, we shouldn't hold anybody responsible for it. Look, I think, you know, past is prologue. And those who don't understand, you know, the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them, right? I, I'm, I think probably mm-hmm. not getting that exactly verbatim. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I think as we, as we contemplate the Holocaust, we need to do so not just as some, you know, abstract moment in time or something that happened, but make sure, again, its lessons are applied today. I think this this has a lot of relevance. Again, I don't like it when people trivialize the Holocaust, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But on the other hand, trying to understand that, for example, laws that disenfranchise a specific class of people like are deeply dangerous to our democracy. And we've seen other liberal democracies that unravel in this way. Or another example would be, you know, how you treat migrants on the border, yet yeah, right? Like Again, I'm not saying that those were concentration camps, like the death camp where my grand my grandfather's relatives were all incinerated. It's not mm-hmm. the same. On the other hand, we need to appreciate that even inside a one-for-one correspondence, there are echoes that we need to pay attention to. Because again, these are the insights that we draw from these historical moments. So whether it's the Holocaust or the Great Depression or the Civil War, we can't expect something to be exactly the same as it was before. But that doesn't mean that we we shouldn't learn from it. And I think we're really derelict of our duty as citizens uh, if we simply ignore these things because they don't fit neatly into the box that we like. 
That's well, so that's I, well put. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's well put. Important. So in that in that cut I played from CBS, the the thing that was most shocking to me was when you said that there were like seventeen. I think it was seventeen thousand tweets that used mm-hmm. the the phrase Hitler was 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 right, which is breathtaking. Um, and then you said the social media companies needed to step up. So I guess let's end with the. Where do we go from here? Uh, it's alarming. It's horrible. But so, what what do you want the social media companies to do about this? Well, you know, the ADL. When I came to ADL in 2015, I mean, I could see back then that the front line in fighting hate wasn't really our college campuses, although that's a challenge for sure. It wasn't really like again, even the public, you know, uh, public places. It, the front line on fighting hate was really Facebook. So ADL opened a shop in Silicon Valley. Our Center for Technology and Society is staffed with people that I recruited from the industry. I mean, I used to work in the industry. Like before I was running ADL and I was in government before this, right? I worked in the West Wing, but I was building and scaling and selling technology companies. So I've raised money on Sand Hill Road, you know, hired engineers. And I deeply believe that, you know, Silicon Valley has changed the way that we shop, the way that we socialize, the way that we seek companionship, the way that we live our lives. And the pace of innovation, Charlie, is so great. Like we can't wait for, you know, octanagerian members of Congress or members of the Senate to like, you know, keep up with it, forget about it, right? They can't tell us anything about quantum computing, right? Or natural <laughs> language processing, for goodness that's, sakes. That's a fair so, guess. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. like the person who runs our shop in Silicon Valley, I didn't hire him from the nonprofit world, I recruited him out of Reddit. I mean, he was a VP of product revenue at Reddit, one of the largest you know, social platforms. I say this because we really have some of the best analysts, some of the most talented engineers who are on staff at ADL doing things like you know, data science work, you know, looking at how we can build new products and platforms using AI and machine learning to detect hate as it happens. And we're collaborating with all of the companies Now, that's germane because as we sit down and engage every single day with everyone from, you know, Amazon and Apple to Facebook and Google uh, and their sub brands like Instagram or or YouTube, respectively, you know, Reddit, Twitter, Twitch, uh, TikTok, so many of these um, platforms and the companies that run them. What I must say is that I've increasingly seen that these businesses will hide behind sort of the First Amendment, if you will, or their own libertarian ethos yeah. to say that they can't take down hate speech. But the reality is, is that these are companies are not, again, public places. They're private businesses. And there's well-developed you know, precedent uh, as a, and affirmed in the Supreme Court that companies have the right to restrict speech on their platforms. I mean, you do, right? You don't have to have on the bulwark anyone, right? So just like you or the New York Times can make decisions about what voices you choose to interview or publish, so these companies can make decisions about what memes they circulate, what conspiracies they share, what videos they highlight, and whose voices they allow on there. Now, there's a fair conversation to have about whether considering how much of the conversation is concentrated in the hands of a few companies, whether that's right. We can certainly have that conversation. But today, right now, considering the law and considering policy and the climate in which, for example, Jews are being assaulted in the streets or Asian Americans were being attacked or black Americans were being subjugated, I think the companies can decide 
do they want to play a role or do they want to incite violence? And what I mean by that is, again, I believe in freedom of expression, but that doesn't encompass the freedom to incite violence against minorities. So when Twitter allows a hashtag like Hitler was right or COVID-1948, I would posit that that doesn't contribute to the public conversation and it should be taken down. When TikTok posts videos that show people celebrating assaults on Jews or anyone else for that matter, I would suggest that that doesn't add to their audience in a meaningful way and they should take that content down. So we want the companies, before the legislators get involved, to demonstrate some degree of, if you will, corporate accountability, some moral leadership and- I hate to have to ask for this as an activist. I'd rather see the shareholders support this, the employees demand this, the you know the the users, the broad audience insist upon it. Um, and I think ultimately, when the businesses do this, Charlie, not only will it clean up their own products, if you will, it will create a healthier civil society, and we all benefit from that. And that gets back to the discussion we had about responsibility, and unfortunately. My fellow conservatives used to understand that rights were always uh, balanced with responsibility, and I think many of them have forgotten that. Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation uh, today. I really appreciate it. Well, Charlie, I will just tell you, I read The Bulwark. I appreciate, again, as I've said, the courage of your own convictions and what you've done. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you here this morning. Well, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Uh, And thank everyone for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Tuesday, and we'll do this all over again. Is there anything?